Welcome to the podcast in search of the perfect movie soundtrack. When the soundtrack needs the movie as much as the movie needs the soundtrack. I'm Joshua Weber. I'm Heather Samples. And I'm Matt Lombardi. Join us this week as we kick off our Sunday shoes to debate the merits of Mellencamp. Guess where Kevin Bacon is from. And learn the secret in a society that outlaws dancing is taking up gymnastics. He's the new kid in town, and the music's on his side. Let's dance! Footloose. Footloose, 1984, directed by Herbert Ross, and it stars, of course, Kevin Bacon, John Lithgow, Diane Weiss, Laurie Singer, and baby Sarah Jessica Parker. What is she, 14 in this? Yeah, she looks really young. And young... Kind of judgy, but skinny, Chris Penn, mm-hmm. Sean Penn's brother. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Kenny Loggins on the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. We'll get to some of the other hits. And I really like the IMDb description of this movie. Let's hear it. A city teenager moves to a small town where rock music and dancing have been banned. And his rebellious spirit shakes up the populace. The populace. That's pretty much. The populace. Wow. How many... <laughs> They went with popular. That, that's <laughs> so a, that's the some thesaurus thing. writing right there. <laughs> I almost changed that word as I was just reading it, but I was like, you got to stay true to IMDb. Oh, yeah. If, so their their lawyers will come after you quick if you misquote them. <laughs> so, but so what's amazing about this is there are two tracks off this soundtrack that were both nominated for the Oscar for Best Original Wild. Song in 1984 competing against each other. And obviously it was Footloose by um, Kenny Loggins and Let's Hear It for the Boy by Denise Williams. But they both lost. Powerhouse songs. Guess what else was nominated and lost? Ghostbusters. Ghost- yep. Your boy. If Matt asks a question and it's open-ended, just, just answer with Ghostbusters. Or Bruce yes. Springsteen. Oh. No. <laughs> I told you. I told you my my hot hot Billy Joel take. Uh, he's the boss of the tri-state area. Oh yeah, oh yeah, he's trying to move us over to Billy Joel. But yeah, but no, but this time Ghostbusters is is accurate. Yeah. But Ghostbusters lost. And guess who beat them? And it's a worthy person. If you have to be if you have to beat iconic soundtrack 80 songs that everyone remembers. It should be I just called to say I love you by Stevie Wonder. Oh, wow. What movie was that in? Uh Lady in Red. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Have either I mean, of you if, seen Lady in Red? I've never seen Lady in I Red, I think no. a long time ago, have you? But I like that song, Lady in Red, or I did when I was young. I don't know that I care about it either way now, but I, I really liked it when I was a kid. It kind of confused me because I was like, wait, isn't the song Lady in yeah, Red? Yeah, I didn't really get that either. I don't even know if the song's Is that also on the, the sound? We might have to do, we might have I mean, to do this on the show. Lady in Red is Oh, I'm sorry. With Guys, me. we got a problem here. Cheek to cheek. The name of the movie is The Woman in Red. The Woman in Red wow, has the Stevie Wonder song. Wow, everyone's so confused at this point. I, I just, I just double-checked it. Woman I mean, in Red. <laughs> <laughs> the Woman in Red, the lady. Regardless, I just called to say I love you. 1984 beats out Footloose and Ghostbusters. And, you know what? and it if comes you... from the fantastic movie, The Man with One Red Shoe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Red starring Warren Beatty. <laughs> Dancing in the sheets. Dancing in the sheets. Dancing in the sheets. 
The movie, mixed reviews, but obviously a big hit because everyone remembers Footloose. But this is what's interesting to me. It was the seventh top grossing film of 1984. Wow. And I think that's because Huge. 1984 is referenced as one of the best years in Hollywood ever. Mm. And if you look at, I like looking at worldwide box office over domestic box office. I like to just go for the gold. And the number one movie, I'm gonna, You're I'm gonna a give you citizen of the world. Was, I'm gonna give you. <laughs> I was admiring. I'm gonna give you some. It's like, man, this guy's really worldly. Wow. <laughs> he doesn't do domestic box office. He's a he's a world box office numbers guy. But look at why the I think Footloose might have been a top three in another year. But its competition in 1984 is like the birth of about like five franchises. Number one, Beverly Hills Cop. Number two, Ghostbusters. Number three, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Then Gremlins, The Karate Kid, Police Academy, and Footloose. Wow. All those movies get sequels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even it's just so funny. And 84 was just, you know, going. Because then if you go past it, you got Purple Rain, you got Dune, you got Splash, you got. Wow. It's just this wild um, year. You have uh, me and Heather's favorite. The Muppets Take Manhattan. You have A Nightmare on Elm Street comes out. Jesus. John Hughes starts his run with 16 Candles. And there's articles about that. People have talked yeah. about how 1984 just was like this major, maybe even shift in like big Hollywood classics blowing up. Oh, and I think you have Terminator too in there as well. I mean, I feel like it's my obligatory duty to cry now about the state of where movies have become in the blockbuster realm. Like you read such an eclectic list as that. And then you think about like if we opened up any of the last couple years and looked at the top 20, you know, grossing movies, it would just, you know, we all know what it would yeah. be. Anyway, I just feel like but, as the old or, man, I've got, I'm obligated to say that, you know, the world used to be better. Or would you be sitting around in 84 and we'd be like, oh, they got goddamn puppets, gremlins. What is this crap? It could be. but And we'd be like in the 70s. That's when they really made movies. You know, there's a really there's a there's a really funny quote out there that that. um of, of uh, Lou Reed talking about how much he enjoyed Police Academy. <laughs> Lou Reed is the Wait, fucking really? best. <laughs> I think that, um, you know, the argument was, hey, you know, an old New York intellectual sometimes wants to go see a dumb movie where a dude makes noises. That's not his quote. I'm paraphrasing. Oh, yeah. Radar. Excellent sound effects. The idea is that movies are also big and fun and silly and wild like a splash or something has always been part of movies as there's nothing wrong with that. It's just when they're all the same movie, that's the problem. And Footloose is certainly fun. Have you, you like that segue? Real smooth. I loved it. Here's what I, it was a fun, it was a fun segue. Here's what I learned in my research though. Rocked my world. There was a remake of this movie in 2011. Did anyone know this existed? I have a vague memory. Here's how I learned about this. When I rented Footloose, I accidentally rented it. Oh, oh no. <laughs> and here's so some <laughs> jerk-ass producer just got like t- two cents and is like, so oh, damn, Clearly what it's happened? got some like SEO behind it. And also the cover of it uses that same iconic uh, Footloose script. And I just, you know, I was just like sitting down to watch oh, a yeah. movie. I was just like smoking a bowl and I didn't look real carefully and I just hit rent and watch now and the first few minutes i was like god damn somebody has remastered the shit out of this this is really (laughs) impressive fidelity like wow and because i'd never seen the original footloose so i didn't immediately know then like pretty quickly you're getting dennis quaid who 
takes on the the John Lithgow character. Oh, he's the Reverend. Yeah, he's the or Reverend. The and, and they 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 mix things up a little bit in timeline. That the new movie starts with a scene of uh of the the son's death that starts the whole process of banning uh music and dancing. So oh, they show it. They show it. Yeah. And uh, the restraint of 1984 was so much more cinematic. And then we and then we cut to Dennis Quaid uh, at the town council meeting, and I was just like, "Wait, Dennis Quaid has aged really?" And then I was like, "No, he hasn't <laughs> aged really well. He looks like this now. There's no way he looked like this 40 years ago." <laughs> and then I realized it was the wrong movie. So yeah, I am now aware of the remake. I'm looking up the uh, cast as you said this, and did you see who his wife was instead of Andy? Andy McDowell. McDowell. Who it wow. would be? It was no surprise to me that she hadn't aged. I mean, she's known for not aging, right? Wow. Um, she is right. a true Dorian Gray, but it was Dennis Quaid that tipped me off that this couldn't possibly be the movie I in- I was. Did you stay for. long did- enough for a dance number? Uh, did you? Oh, yeah. Well, did you opens, get to Footloose? It opens with Footloose at the party that by? kills Bobby by Kenny Loggins. Wait, oh. no. But in the in the version Spoiler. you watched, Footloose is by. Oh, I think that 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 one comes later. I think they do. Oh, like it's a, a little, different. Yeah. Oh, they have a like. Oh, it's probably the the end credits, isn't yeah. it? I bet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Foot loose. But the uh, oh, the but country it's, version. It's Blake Shelton. But it's Blake Shelton. Yeah. The country yeah, yeah. remake. Yeah. Wow. Kick off. What an adventure you went on. It was an adventure, and you know what? I still have access to the rental. I'm thinking I might watch it because why not? Yeah, <laughs> I can let's think do, of a couple reasons let's why. Do not. a live watch together. <laughs> a couple million it. reasons. I would be going to open a, any streaming device and click on anything, and that would be a reason why not. But you know, hey, go for it. <laughs> so yeah, Matt, I know about well, the remake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a deep. Yeah, deep turn. Don't, what do they say in law? Don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. <laughs> <laughs> also, Heather's like, I have three hours left on my rental, so let's wrap this up so I can finish 2011 Footloose. I get this feeling, times is holding me down. I'll hit the ceiling, or else I'll tear up this The opening credits are as they're showing, you know, the the stars and everything. It's just feet um, dancing to the song Footloose, and it keeps showing different. And you kind of see who's different people because there's different pairs of shoes, and they kind of have different moves, different styles. Yeah, and it's like a beat up pair of wingtips and some scrunchy shot very, socks and ripped up sneakers. Yeah. I thought it was a cute device. It was. I was just surprised by it because it's such a, it's such a like musical sort of beginning. I, I was just surprised because I was like, wow, this is a really um this this is not beginning yeah. in a, in a in a movie where you're establishing characters and things like that. It's beginning with a real um vibe sort of beginning felt like the overture of a musical or something yeah but so so that led me to look up the director who is herbert ross who's started as a dancer but became a major choreography for tv film and broadway and he's worked with like barbara streisand and peter o'toole and adapted neil simon plays and he's just this old brooklyn guy he made this when he was 57 his parents were um, Russian Jewish immigrants. He grew up in Brooklyn, moved to Manhattan, became a Broadway guy, got into the movies, 
and just had a great career as a choreographer and then had this weird 80s hit with Footloose and then tops off his career at the end where his big, huge hit um, is Steel Magnolias, which I never knew he directed that. Steel Magnolias was made by the same director as Footloose? Mama, diabetics have babies all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's when uh, Herbert Ross is like, can you do it again? A little more crying? (laughs) But Shelby, you're my diabetic. I fucking love Steel Magnolias. (laughs) Maybe we should just like, let's just call up the script and have a table read. We'll punch it up with some (laughs) efing. Just the callback. But he also made, wait, where's the weird one? The Michael J. Fox, The Secret of My Success. That's in that and Ferris Bueller? Oh, yeah. It's in, uh, yeah, I think it was was like in every other movie in the 80s. He also made My Blue Heaven, which is funny because if you remember it, there's a total dance sequence in it. And I remember being like, why is there this weird vacation dance sequence in My Blue Heaven? It makes no sense. And you're like, oh, because Herbert Ross made it. And he was like, let's have some fun Broadway style. Anyway, that made the movie more charming to me watching it, knowing he did it. Along that same lines, um, um, Footloose has a lot of real musical moments. And I mean, I don't mean... Like just because there happens to be music on, but I mean, there's there are moments that are shaped like and directed like a musical. Obviously, there's the famous Kevin Bacon dancing all over the <laughs> warehouse, but there's also the scene at the uh, diner oh, when yeah. somebody turns on the uh, she uh, Ariel Ariel yes. turns on the, uh, the 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 music on the jam box that they all carry around, and the whole diner there's... starts to dance together, <laughs> like because apparently that music can be heard everywhere. Uh-huh. <laughs> but but. There's another one, too, when they're getting ready for the dance and everybody's like moving the flower sacks around and and like hanging, hanging lights and paper stars. (laughs) In those scenes, they always make a point of having that jam box with them, that they always hit play on the tape. It's a magic jam box. Yeah. And so on the one hand, the film wants to say like, oh, no, the music is actually here in the room. But on the other hand, like everybody anywhere can hear the music. So it's interesting that it's like working as like a diegetic and non-diegetic music yeah. at the same time. I think it's one of those moments, and there are many in this movie, where one is just asked to suspend quite a bit of disbelief. Like musicals. <laughs> like yeah. in like musicals. musicals. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so that, that, was, that was something I did not remember about the movie at all. It's no wonder that they made a Broadway yeah. show yeah. out of it. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely yeah. clear. I mean, if this had been a Broadway show first and this was the film version, I wouldn't have been surprised. I mean, no, seeing me it again, it's, it's, you can see that, that very heavily. Uh, needless to say, though, this movie and soundtrack were huge. And the soundtrack, when you look it up, it's funny. Just it's it's gold and platinum. And then like in Canada, it's like five or six times platinum. And Australia, it was huge. And it's just the album itself is big everywhere. And then, of course, the single Footloose by Kenny Loggins all around, especially in the U.S., goes up the charts. Number one, I think three or more weeks, all that stuff. But we're going to get to all that. We're also going to get to a funny little quiz I have plotted for you guys that I didn't didn't let you know any details about. But 
let's just let's just jump into the movie first. 1984, and my here's my question. And I I, I don't think so, but I want to put this out there. Can we think of another title track? written for a film that's more synonymous than Footloose the song is to Footloose the movie. And of course, I'll start by saying Ghostbusters doesn't even hold a candle to it. I love (laughs) Ghostbusters, but the movie kind of towers over it and it's kind of like the side song. It's cute. But anyone have a choice where like the movie and the song are just so on the same level and famous together? I mean, I I think you have this you have this like weird little obsession with title tracks that that match the movie. Like you you love like this this little <laughs> that territory. Is true, huh? This is just ep- this is just episode number <laughs> well, 2. That's true, but I feel like maybe maybe it goes beyond straight episodes, just conversation. We're doing pretty woman next <laughs> um, time. <laughs> but I think I think the answer is yes, there is a very strong contender. Ooh. I can't think of one. Give it to me. Nine two five. Oh, of yes. course. So yeah, my yeah. obsession That's clashing up one. to your obsession with Dolly Parton. <laughs> right. yeah. This is kind of perfect. Right now. That meme of the two hands shaking in the middle, right? <laughs> Title tracks: Dolly yeah, Parton yeah. Love, and then you're right. Nine to five. Wow, wow. That's either a straight up tie, or I don't know. We can make a case for each. Maybe maybe Dolly gets it. I think they're both. I think I think they Oof. both meet the goal that you set here, or the uh, the requirement completely. I think they're both doing exactly. Yeah. Uh, what is there saying. a? And I think that the real test of it is like if someone says to you, "Oh, I love Nine to five and you have to ask yourself, "Do you mean the movie or do you mean the song?" Oh yeah, that's perfect. Because yeah. that's how you know. Yeah. That's how you know if it really passes the test. That's and I feel test. like if I said to you, oh my God, nine to five is so fucking great. Seminal work that you'd be like, song or movie? Yeah. Well, if you were saying it, I would suspect we were talking about the song, but yes, you're right. <laughs> you're right. I, I, I think true. that uh, for That's the most true. part. But there's no one you can say that to and they say, oh, Ghostbusters, I love that song. Yeah, that's true. Which is why it doesn't count at all. And but, this Which is, is a great perf- point because everybody does know Ghostbusters. But everybody would assume yeah. you were talking about the movie first. Yeah, so that's a great test. Yes, it is. I was gonna say, I was gonna say a hard day's night. Oh, that's a pretty good. I think entry, it's. Though. I think it's not bad. But oh, now that I think about it, compared to what you two brought to the it. table, I don't think it's quite there. Yeah, no one goes to the movie, but I think I don't know. Those are too huge. Like people often cite that as like a big movie mo- movie soundtrack moment as well. Yeah, no, it's it's up there. It's definitely close. I don't think it it's quite where you, where the ones you guys pick ours. But I think that just shows how high that standard is, right? It's it's, it's a tough one. The yeah. Beatles could not yeah. even get there. <laughs> Only yeah. Kenny Loggins could get there. So track listing, besides obviously Footloose by Kenny Loggins, we have Let's Hear It For The Boy by Denise Williams. We'll get to that later. Another classic. Almost Paradise, which is by Mike Reno and Ann Wilson. I remember this song really well because it was it was a huge song, but I didn't really remember who sang it. And so when I uh, um, was you know going through the soundtrack and stuff and saw it was Ann Wilson, I was delighted because I think heart comes up every episode, right? As well they should. Heart. 
Anne and Nancy. We've been on a good heart streak. How many times have we mentioned heart? Like four episodes in a row? Five? I, I, I don't know, but it's definitely been multiple episodes. We should try to keep that going. Can we fit heart into every episode? I, I bet we could. Let's do it. Let's go for it. This song was big, man. There was a lot of songs on this that were big, but this is definitely one of them. That I mean, this It just seemed like this, this soundtrack was on the radio all the time. And so much... Of this sound, like half of these sound like singles or were singles or... Right. And then you have, speaking of big singles, the most ridiculous song, we'll get to it later though, but Holding Out for a Hero by Bonnie Mm -hmm. Tyler. I need a hero. Dancing in the Sheets by Shalimar. And the other Loggins track, I'm Free, Heaven Helps the Man. And Somebody's Eyes by Carla Bonoff. Am I saying that right? Bonoff, Bonoff. I'm not sure. Who knows, man? Uh, then we got Girl Gets Around by Sammy Hagar makes an appearance. I had no no memory of that. And then Never by Moving Pictures, which people might not know it by the name, but that is the infamous dancing in an empty warehouse Kevin Bacon scene that people usually remember from this movie. That's the song that's... It's more rhythmic gymnastics than dancing, though, wouldn't you say? That's true. That's a good point. Yeah, it's actually literally gymnastics at certain points. Do you know they had four stunt doubles for it? And two were gymnastic stunt doubles? I like how so many of the characters in this movie are like like homo-shaming Kevin Bacon, but every... Thing seems to be fine about him wanting to join the gymnastics team at this high school in like rural Mountain West town. It's not at all weird. Are you homo shaming <laughs> gymnasts, Heather? Is that saying, what your point is? The right fuck now? on! This is not a high school with <laughs> a gymnastics. He. It is interesting that the way that 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 it's just sort of like a. It, they just jump. Yeah. Okay. He gets there. He makes a friend. Pretty much right away, they're both practicing gymnastics. Yeah. It's like, all right, um, I guess, sure. You know, I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. He ma- he makes a friend by making, um, by um, undercutting his masculinity. And the guy's like, all right, I'm down with this. Because remember, he wants, he bumps into um, Chris Penn, young, skinny Very Chris young. Penn wearing a big cowboy hat. And he bumps into him and he's like, I hate you, new kid. Let's fight. And you think they might get in a fight. And then Kevin Bacon, with his quick Chicago wit, he's a kid from Chicago, shows up to the rural town. He looks at his hat and he says, they sell women's clothes where you bought that hat? And then he goes, he just smiles and he's like, you're all right, guys. And the guy, and then they become best friends for he some reason. He actually says, do they also sell menswear where you got that hat? Which is like a slightly better <laughs> joke than your paraphrase. I don't know. I don't know. I thought mine was, I thought mine rang a little more true. We could do some rewrites for the 2011 one. I'll let you know after I watch it how how much it needs you to come in for a punch up. Oh, um, I got it. I got them covered. This whole movie is like broke back between those two. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That would actually that would actually help explain the the um the immediacy and the depth of their friendship. It is it is instant. The moment they um yeah. have that that conversation yeah. in the hallway, they are best friends. They're going to lunch, they're telling yeah. stories, they're hanging out. Yeah, they even have a sexy car wash scene together. <laughs> like, the, the, the whole movie is a love story between the two of them. Whatever Chris Penn was doing the day before, like, whatever people he used to hang out with, they're gone. His whole life has become whatever Ren wants to do. I'm here. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny that we're talking about some love story and homoeroticism because the reason we're doing Footloose 
is I was thinking about Kevin Loggins and figured Kevin Loggins. Huh? We should <laughs> Kevin, Kevin wow. Loggins into what the internet? Kenny Loggins is of course the major soundtrack big hit dude on Top Gun. Now the smart money would be doing Top Gun right now because Top Gun Maverick came out. I looked on iTunes; it's like fourth um, best selling soundtrack, the nineteen eighty six one. Let's start talking about Top Gun then. But we are neither smart. Or about the money on this. And the <laughs> listeners on Instagram voted for Footloose for the Kenny Loggins one. So that's where we're doing it. But the reason I bring it up is because Top Gun is usually the big homoerotic movie that everyone reads into and talks about right. how it's really a gay love story. So I thought I mean, thought that was interesting. Half of buddy comedies, that's what's happening. If not more. And I know that this, is, this isn't a buddy comedy. but Yeah, but Top Gun, you got like oiled up dudes playing with the boys is playing. They're, they're playing volleyball. It's hot. I don't know that I felt like Footloose had a lot of of veiled homoeroticism like Top Gun does. Um, and Top Gun, it may not even be veiled, but um, Top Gun is intensely homoerotic. All I'm saying is that I think that that explanation would make a hell of a lot of sense about it. The movie, some of this, what happens in the movie, makes more sense with that explanation. I don't think the movie's necessarily like like giving us little subtle hints of that. Oh, I don't think that I was joking. I don't think the movie is at all aware of this. I th- I okay. think that Be, but it does make more sense. Their relationship makes a bit more sense. Yeah. I just think that yeah, exactly. I just think that like watching it in the year 2022 trying to resolve your cognitive dissonance about everything you're seeing, you're like, "Oh, but if it's just about these two guys falling in love with each other and like building this intimacy and she's just kind of there as like foil in the same yes. way that Sarah Jessica Parker is just sort of there as a foil right. yeah. in the on the other side like I, that makes sense i can get into that yeah i mean it makes sense yeah you i agree it makes her character makes more sense in this dynamic too because she's kind of a weird character and um i didn't really like her as a character like maybe yeah. you didn't Laurie like Singer? her because she is the worst crazy eyed right. girlfriend a person could ever ask i for. didn't understand why the movie wanted me to think that they were like some really adorable couple and destined to be together. And so the moments where they're like really having those, uh, you know, the, the um, uh, almost paradise. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, like he could do better with anyone there. She, she doesn't. Yeah. You just wanted him to get with Chris Penn. Well, I didn't never thought about You were that, like, what is this? This I is d- the truth. I just thought that she was not a very good character um, and not interesting and seemed like kind of a jerk. And I don't know. Yeah. She was, she was an after school special character. I would say. I don't think they even put to any me. effort into making her very likable. She she ditches her longtime yeah, she, boyfriend. Well, she was dealing. She's dealing with shit. Yeah, she's a I mean, mess. Okay, she is a toxic mess. Yes, yeah, and if I were rusty, yeah, she seemed awful. Sarah Jessica Parker's character, who is her sidekick, I would be like, "Bitch, you right. need to get your shit together. You you are like spewing horribly unprocessed trauma at every person that you see." <laughs> but that's the thing. She's she's the unprocessed trauma. Well, yeah, she's, you're right. You know that that reminds me. She's going she's through trauma. That's a good point. I, I'm judging her too hard. She's she, her brother died. Her brother died. The theme is, which kind of fits with the gay thing too, is repression, right? And maybe white rage is also the theme of this movie. But what's yeah, funny sure. to me is she's traumatized. I guess we should explain to people her story. Um, her brother got drunk and died in a car. I forget how did that lead to band dancing they had gone to a dance or something well, because they they looked at it as like just crazy teens you know so, so then yeah. so then the father bans dancing so it's a town where they've banned dancing and the way she expresses her rage i think 
I guess it is thematic because I was laughing about it, but saying out loud now is there are so many scenes with her challenging vehicles in this movie because the brother dies in the drunk driving accident. It opens with her standing on two between two cars with one foot in each window, Jean-Claude Van Damme style going down the highway. Then they play tractor chicken where they run tractors at Uh each other. Then she does that train dodge. Remember when she tries to, she screams at a train and he jumps out of the way. And then when she has the final falling out with her asshole boyfriend, she takes a pipe and beats the shit out of his car. Oh, Jesus. This is, this is clearly a theme. And I hadn't even, I hadn't even figured out. She is just beating the shit out of every vehicle because her brother died in an accident. And so uh, to me, it makes sense. I mean, maybe it's a little cheesy, but I I think it's intentional though, in the way that like, I don't think the movie understands it, how, uh, homoerotic it is. I do think that it, they want, they actually did intend for all of her rage to, to come in. in. Oh yeah. That, that's definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, the homoerotic stuff isn't, but she should have like, like smashed her brother's matchbox car with her foot. I wanted more of it after I caught on to it. I just wanted her to just like smash everything. I, I missed it. I didn't, I didn't give the movie enough credit. I, this, this is an interesting well, idea. When I do you my know, punch up, I will bring this out next week. I think it's also a way for her to, uh, it's like the, the 84 version of being a cutter. Ah. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like, like it, it's it's got a little bit of like self harm in it, and and like uh, I I, I want to hurt myself just to feel alive, kind of thing. But she wants to ch- she wants to challenge her life by trying to get killed by a car, train, truck, or tractor. It's mixed with a little <laughs> bit of Cronenberg's Crash. Yes, yes, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> So should we get a little deeper into the soundtrack? You want to single out some songs? Joshua, what do you have for a favorite or or the most interesting song to you? I felt like the scene where Let's Hear It For The Boy plays by Denise Williams is a really remarkable moment. I The music to me stood out more in that scene than a lot of the music did in a lot of the other scenes. And I think... It's 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 a good song. It's a fun song, but I think it's also as simple as it sounds a little bit different than the rest of the music. It has like a little bit of a different production to it or something. And the scene is when um, Kevin Bacon is teaching Chris Penn how to dance, and Chris Penn has been very clear about the fact that he does not know how to dance at all. He won't. He a won't, montage. He yeah. won't even like shrug his shoulders. He won't do anything. And so yeah, we get a big montage of Kevin Bacon teaching him, and it's a pretty fun scene. It's 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 it's. And it lasts a very a, long time. It might be the whole song, if not, or at least close. Yeah. It's a very long scene, and they have. You can tell the actors have a lot of fun in the scene. It's a little bit silly. Um, but the song I thought really stood out in the movie, felt more dynamic than a lot of the other songs did. And, um, so yeah, let's hear it for the song. Let's hear it for the boy. (laughs) Roger Ebert said that one of the things about this movie that he didn't like was that it was trying to do too many things and be too many, uh, make too many moves. And one of the things that he says it's trying to do without synthesizing that into anything else is being a music video. Oh, and I, yeah. And, and I think that that scene is the one where mm-hmm. that that assessment is like clearest. For it sure. Really, it really does feel like if you plucked that entire scene out, you would have a, a, a like a proto version of an MTV video. Yeah. Um, you get you get the two guys just like dancing together again, 
Brokeback Mountain, but make it a party. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it lasts the the whole almost the whole song, if not the whole song, and it's fucking delightful to watch. It's really fun because you also get a sports montage arc where he can barely walk straight, yeah. and then he's hitting uh-huh. some moves at the end, and they do a good job of showing him like getting better and better and like. The silly ways you can teach someone to dance. I thought it was yeah. pretty funny to watch. And then by the end, he only he even takes on his own style, which is to like to like make it really goofy, right? Like mm-hmm. he does dance moves, but then he like his like goal is to make Kevin Bacon laugh with his dance moves. And yeah. part of it is also that and Chris Penn is like along with Sarah Jessica Parker is one of the only believable teenagers in the movie. I don't know how yeah. old he actually was. Yeah, he's but he a actually, pretty good teen. That's right. He he seems like a teen. He has that big dumb young dude vibrance to them, you know, that's believable. And of course, they're paired up with all of these other actors who are clearly adults. I mean, the average age of the kids at this high school is 32 or something. It's like Greece. It's hilarious how old everybody is. But Chris Penn's very charming in it, partially because it's like, you really believe like his, aw shucks, I don't know what's going on. Old hillbilly thing is like, it, it works. It seems like a teen. And in this scene, it's a lot of fun. But you know what I didn't know anything about is Denise Williams. Do you guys know about Denise Williams? Nothing. No. Me neither. And I <laughs> and and okay, so fine. So look her up, right? Like who's this Denise Williams? Oh, she had a song on Footloose. Great. No. No. Wikipedia <laughs> is long. She has had she had a huge career. I mean, the number of charts that she's been on in her career, well, she's been on all the charts. All the soul charts, all the RME charts. Okay, so I'll run you through a little bit of it, but basically she um gets dis- uh she get- kind of gets discovered in a way it's not really any great dramatic discovery story except for the fact that the first person she basically hooks up with as a singer is Stevie Wonder oh, and wow. Stevie Wonder pretty much immediately puts her in the uh the Wonder Loves which is his vocal backing group not a bad way to kick off a career no she's on like all the stevie wonder records all the key songs in the key of life like the whole run oh, of stevie wow. wonder records then she she's so then she, this is her thing now she's like the backing and she's like i think one of the like lead backing vocals and all this stuff she has like a four octave range people are very impressed with her she's also putting out her own albums this whole time and she's charting all over the place i mean she's she's you know charting on the r&b charts charting on the soul charts um she's backup vocals on stevie wonder's wife's album uh his wife sarita she's backing vocals on mini ripperton record loving you is easy because you're beautiful backing vocals for roberta flack and all this time, she's also putting out records that people are enjoying, that are charting a little bit. And then she uh, teams up with Johnny Mathis. And in 1978, she has a number one on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. So this is the the biggest selling record charts, right? Then with Johnny Mathis called Too Much, Too Little, Too Late. Went to number one in 1978. Too much, too little, too late to lie again with you. This must just be like a big gap in my literacy because I'm looking at a Google image search of her face. I don't even recognize this woman. Like, I, 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 no, yes, I have no connection to her. Denise Williams, I'm sorry because it sounds like you really deserve to be a recognizable face. So then she goes to number one again with Let's Hear It for the Boy in Footloose. And I think that, you know, uh, whatever year gap that is, eight years or something, I wonder how many we could find that are like an 
eight-year gap of somebody who didn't have like a significant series of number ones in general, right? But like a number one and then eight years later, another number one. That's got to be pretty rare. That's pretty remarkable. I, I have a weird one that just came to mm -hmm. mind. When George Harrison had I Got My Mind Set on You in the late 80s, I feel like he kind of disappeared in the 80s. Yeah, I mean, might be a little unfair using a Beatle <laughs> as a comparison, but I see what you're going for. I think there's a lot of 60s groups had hits in the 80s, maybe. But number yeah. one is difficult. Number yeah, one, get you, into number you can one. think of huge hit songs that went to number three. Number one's hard. At the same time that Footloose is rocking the nation, she takes a particular side in the culture war that, that uh, Footloose is about because she goes hardcore gospel and so hardcore gospel that when she appeared at the 27th annual Grammy Awards in 1985, where, of course, she's going to sing Let's Hear It For The Boys, right? She doesn't. She sings a gospel song, um, God Is Amazing, instead, yeah. making everyone oh, upset. Oh, wow. That is a real bait and fucking switch there. It's an Denise. acapella version of of a, of her 1977 no, song. No, that is not the boy we amazing. wanted to hear. And um, yeah, that's not what primetime 1985 Grammy Awards was hoping they were going to get. <laughs> but that's that's what she was giving them. No, that's that's not only not what they were hoping they were going to get. That's not what they bought. Yeah, that's not the boy we wanted to hear it for, Denise. I think like if you randomly pick anything in this world and start to research it, you might find a lot of interesting stuff about it because I certainly didn't know I was going to find all this. And here's another one of the interesting things I found. The television theme song that you both know, that everybody knows, that she sings. And it is from the 80s and you know it. Do you want to guess? Uh, are you going to give us anything other than the 80s? <laughs> Golden Girls, thank you for being a friend. It's not Golden Girls? Oh my god, it's oh, wow. I bet we've been together for a million years. <laughs> and I bet we've been together for a million, for a million more. more. Oh, it's like I started breathing on the night we kissed. And I can't remember what I ever did before. What did we do, you, baby? baby? Wow. <laughs> I can see the painting. Remember the season? I think they switched eventually when they're doing the painting of the uh, Keaton family from uh, Family Ties. We have to talk about Family Ties for a second. Family Ties was the finest 1980s sitcom available. And Michael P. Keaton, played by Michael Gross, Alex P. Keaton's father, was an architect and had a beard, like a Chris Christopherson beard, a salt and pepper beard. And he was like, to, to young uh, tween Heather, mm -hmm. he was a total sex symbol. I loved everything. The of, dad. A dad, yeah. He, he, the, the dad yeah, and family the ties. The dad and family ties, that's right. Wow, yeah. okay. He, I, I always had a thing for Elise's wife, so maybe you're onto something get here. Get out! Okay. That's the same hand, the two hands yeah, coming together. Dolly Parton and <laughs> Ghostbusters and M Michael we Keaton just... and Elise Keaton. 
I mean, I was it's all funny, I though. was all in on Mallory, so I don't know what y'all are talking I about. I mean, I think yeah, you, no, you actually well, like, did yeah, what you were supposed wins, to. Obviously. Matt and I were clearly yeah. <laughs> off script, um, but uh, Family yeah. Ties was the fucking no. Best. Mallory was definitely it's a, it was a, I really liked that show. I am. It was fun, and, and you know why? My, my, and Michael J. Because Michael J. Fox is is a really really great screen presence. Totally. Because yeah. and Family Ties tried to often tried to answer the questions the big chill raises and doesn't want to answer because it's that right. same hippies true. becoming yuppies yes. yep trying to figure yes. out the and 80s does it in a much more delightful way than 30 something would right yeah 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 yeah. that's true 30 yeah. something took like the dour sad yes. version yes. of it but family ties was like actually this yeah. can all work out just fine plus yeah. you have a cool neighbor in skippy I, yeah and uh case. and and oh god you i forgot a, about a, skippy. an actually cool uh neighbor in nick that's true. Wow, deep dive. Yeah. So you're saying just use the um, aggressive cultural right. Reaganite 80s as just like a laughing point with Michael J. Fox and yeah. just laugh at it and hope and hope it's. <laughs> well, I mean, he's just a kid. You know what? You know, it worked. It was kid. always funny too. But I'm saying you just make it the butt of the joke. It worked in that one. And then it, it loses its teeth, I guess. That's a different way to deal with it. Anyway, I'm so glad uh, to know about Johnny Mathis and Denise, who yeah. who gave us that song, which is right up there with the Cheers theme song, if you ask it's, me, in terms of like they were, emotional They were just resonance. a faceless sitcom song before this, but now right. we have... We have we have some uh, strong connection to them. Um, so yeah, Denise Williams, one hundred and one. Um, I have a much more appreciation for her and her uh, career, which is a uh, you know a way more to her yeah. career than I even said. Uh, yeah, very impressive. And you know, let's hear it for the boys. A fun song. Also, I'm gonna watch some Family Ties when we're done. Let's just have a Family Ties podcast. Okay, so watching this small town Americana movie, I noticed the accents were kind of all over the place. And if you had to guess where they were, what town this was, and you didn't know it was Utah, you probably would be very confused. So I thought, who, what accents are they using? And I think everyone was just talking with their own accent and not trying to do anything regional in this movie. So I thought, what if I asked you guys about a few of the actors and where they were really born and raised and see if you could figure it out. Okay. So let's start with, okay. and I'm going to give you multiple choice. I'll give you three choices for each one. So let's start with John Lithgow. Testing us why he could take all these pornographic books and albums and turn them into one big fiery cinder like that. But how would that make us stronger for him? Was John Lithgow born and raised in A, Rochester, New York, B, Leeds, England, or C, Jackson, Mississippi? Rochester. I'm going Rochester. Ding, 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 ding. You are correct. Okay. So if you'd asked me without the multiple choice, I would have been like, I don't know, a pilgrim town. Yeah, he's very pilgrimy, which is why I was trying to (laughs) trick you with an England thing. (laughs) He does look pilgrim. He's totally pilgrim. Uh, but that's why I threw in down. England, because I was like, you know, maybe he was, you know. So Kevin Bacon is supposed to be a kid from Chicago. What city was he really from in real life? Chicago, Philadelphia, or Houston? Because somebody's got it in for me. Now, somehow Coach finds out that I brought Ariel home late last night, so I'm a troublemaker, right? Yeah, but that's not why I'm off the team, see? No, no. I'm off the team because they just don't have the funds for one more gymnast this year, but thank you anyway. You know, I'm busting my balls trying to fit in here, and every door is getting slammed in my face. 
Houston. Chicago. It is actually Philadelphia. He's from Philly. Oh, God, we both missed it. I never knew knew There was no way it was Houston. As soon as I said Houston and you didn't say anything, I knew I had to be wrong. Philly, huh? He doesn't have a Philly accent at all that I could hear. Well, unless Wikipedia is lying. I mean, to he me. didn't sound like a mayor of Easttown. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Diane Weist. Okay. I think Mr. McCormick has a right to be heard. <laughs> Los Angeles, California, Concord, New Hampshire, Kansas City, Missouri. Gosh, she always plays people from like Concord, New Hampshire. So. Uh, but is that just uh, who she just kind of looks like, or is that because Woody Allen put her in everything? <laughs> I'm gonna go with the. I'm gonna be counterintuitive, and I'm gonna say Kansas City. Same. You guys are oh, correct. Kansas yes. City, Missouri. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> but I was with you, Joshua. I thought she was like uh, either like a Connecticut oh, person Another or Pilgrim New York town. person. Yeah, I've been seeing her in like you know those upper upper middle Kansas class City, sweaters around her shoulders my <laughs> yeah. whole life. She does the New York thing very well. Yeah, for sure. I got two more. Sarah Jessica Parker. Okay. He has team practice every day until 4. On Monday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, he works at the Bemis Mill till 6. Whoops. You already knew that, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, he hasn't dated since he's been in town. And late Friday nights. Yeah? By the light of the full moon. He, uh, breaks into churchyards and bites the heads off live chickens. <laughs> Nelsonville, Ohio. Norwalk, Connecticut. Tulsa, Oklahoma. Ohio. Connecticut. Ohio. Heather's right. Oh, my God. Really? All right. The only way I knew it was because Nelsonville is too specific. Matt wouldn't have come up with that as... Uh, Sorry. Hashtag test-taking skills. (laughs) I kept this in mind for some of them you didn't notice then. Because I was like, you can't pick the capital of every state. Yes. So you both got the John Lithgow one. That's one point each. Both struck out on Kevin Bacon, right? Then Diane Weist, I think... Who got that one? I did. Okay, so it's 2-1, but then Heather comes back with the Sarah Jessica Parker, so it's (laughs) 2-2. It is tied. We are down to the fifth question, the final one. Who is the champion of... All right, let's do this. ...some lame knowledge of knowing where actors are from? Chris Penn. Okay. You know what it is, partner? You got an attitude problem. Oh, I got an attitude problem? And I'm not the only one who's noticed it, man. I mean, we're not living in the goddamn Middle Ages here. We got TV. We got Family Feud. We're not stuck in Leave it to Beaverland here. Is it A, Gatlinburg, Tennessee, B, Los Angeles, California, C, Conway, Arkansas? B. B. Are you both with B? Yes. Yes. Because then if you're both wrong or right, you're going to tie. Ugh, you're both right. (laughs) Yeah. Heather, I was trying to do the specific state thing yeah, there, but, and I was like, "I mean, Gatlinburg, come on." Yeah, I guess everyone. Knows. The pen, yeah. the pens are like the epitome. Yeah, of like, we know of too like, much about his family. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're very California. Yeah, the pens just seem like Sean as California Penn. as it gets. Yeah, when you think of Spicoli and Fast yeah, Times yeah. at Ridgemont High. Wow. So you guys, maybe we'll do some future quizzes, but you're tied but right it's now. Fine. I, I'll share the. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll share the throne. I'll you're, share such a, that. you're such a generous, like magnanimous guy, Joshua. The movie begins with the opening scene of John Lithgow playing the preacher, and he's giving. 
a sermon and in the uh, and while and he's giving a real fire and brimstone you know anti rock and roll anti you know all the bad stuff that's happening in our society sermon and you are all you're being introduced to the new kid in town which is Kevin Bacon sitting on the other side of the church are the the, the girls who who are looking over and think he's cute and the girls who also worth noting are not really paying attention to the sermon even though the sermon is very much saying if you don't listen to uh, to this stuff if you don't care about this if you don't dedicate your life to these ideas you're going to burn in hell. And you see like, yeah, none of the kids are really listening to this. It's a really well-written scene. Yeah, it is. Like they, they, you get the whole story. You get the whole setup in like four minutes or whatever, however long the scene is. The first couple scenes of the movie, I was like, oh man, this is a good script. They're really doing a lot of work really quickly. I didn't feel like that throughout the movie, but this is reminding me that maybe the script was pretty solid in a lot of ways. Yeah, I found myself thinking that they took a lot more care with this movie and I was much more charmed by it because it had a little more heart than I expected. Cause you know, you watch like gremlins or something. It's just like fun. I thought it was going to be pure eighties fun, but I was felt it was pretty thought through. It definitely has after school TV moments a lot, but there's something a little, there's a little more craft to it than I expected, I guess. You guys know how strongly I feel about movies for teenagers oh, yeah. and, mm-hmm. and how Good much point. I think that movies for teenagers are important and that, that they're like a service that adults provide to teenagers. I think that Footloose is one of the first real movies for teenagers. Mm. It comes out this in, in the same year as Sixteen Candles and and Breakfast Club is right around there, too. And for the 80s. Yeah. But you've had Rebel Without a Cause and that whole the James Dean thing. Sure, but I think that's different. That was like, total teen. But it wasn't designed um, specifically to reflect teenagers' lives back at them. It so was. That they... It was. But uh, uh, Natalie Wood, everything. That was the whole concept. Okay, fucking fine. It's the first. <laughs> Sorry, it's fine. the first moment of like teen movies that have any relevance to my moment in time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I will admit it. Like I don't care about James Dean. <laughs> um, a- and. And I think that Sixteen Candles and The Breakfast Club are are a lot more authentic to an actual teen experience than Footloose. Like, I don't think that that Footloose must have felt in the moment as relatable as those movies. Um, and I think that like what you just said, Matt, about there being this uh, this like after school special kind of vibe to it is you can see that in a way that that we don't see after school special vibes quite as much in in those John Hughes movies. Um, but we it, and it takes a couple more years to get to the point where we have Ferris Bueller and Pretty in Pink, where I feel like we're we're starting to actually see like more complex emotional landscapes of of adolescence on the screen. But I do think that we should give Footloose some credit for, as you said, Joshua, like being a pretty well-designed script, like trying its best to show teens as like social actors with a purpose. Like mm-hmm. everyone gives Kevin Bacon's character all of these ways out. Uh, and he's like, no, I, I want to take on the town. I want to change the town because it will make me feel like I know who I am. And that feels like a really legitimate like picture of of teen mentality. I mean, certainly it 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 did to everybody at the time. I mean, you know, you saw it, it in the theater, right? Well, I, I was, yeah, I was, I was, I was a, a tad teen, too young, no. probably. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I definitely, you know, I remember the impact of it. I mean, it definitely spoke to the youth of that age. You know, it definitely felt like you know, because kids already always feel like you know the rules of our parents are arbitrary and don't make sense. 
And so this is just like taking that and saying like, no, you're right. They don't. This is stupid. But, yeah. And so it's just. And they are always right. Yeah. And so <laughs> it just, you know. Yeah. Dramatizes that feeling that kids already have. Yeah. But this time also mm-hmm. gives them something that that they're right about. Right. Like it. it yeah. It's stupid. The rules of the town are stupid. And. One of the things I thought the movie did really well about that, though, that I had totally forgotten about is that they 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 show that the rules. This is not some old, long lasting biblical tradition in this town. These rules are only in place since her older brother, the preacher's son, died a handful of years earlier. After he dies, as we said a moment ago, they create all this new rule. So you see very directly how this this grasp of like fundamentalism and traditionalism is is made out of desperation and 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 trauma and fear and all of these things. And it's a modern feeling. And, you know, in 1984, America is going through this, too. Right. You've got the satanic panic. You've got the rise of evangelical Christianity. This this feeling that like that, that, you know. The country is changing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and and it's becoming this terrible thing that we need to fight against. Now, of course, we all know how politically problematic it is because there's so much loaded in with all this stuff. But that was a feeling that was that a lot of people were having then. So the movie is is showing us that through the little microcosm of this town, saying like we're seeing like this this grasp of fundamentalism and yeah. and all that comes with that. And um, at the time, actually, my my dad was going through his evangelical period. And I remember after I saw the movie, which I think I saw with a friend and I don't know that I had his permission. And uh, (laughs) if I did, I'm not I don't remember, but I know he was fairly disapproving of it. And because what from what he knew of the movie, it's not that he (laughs) thought necessarily that dancing and rock and roll were bad, although he was pretty close to that at that point. Um, he definitely knew that the movie was some Hollywood bullshit and that it was like this idea of creating a, 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 an overly exaggerated villainous kind of church that then secularism gets to defeat and then everybody celebrates. And so he was very much, he like talked to me about that afterwards about like, you look, he didn't agree necessarily with the ideas that, that the fire and brimstone would be necessarily about those particular things, you know, dancing and rock and roll. But the idea that there are rules, God has rules, and Hollywood wants to tell you that they don't really matter if it feels good to do something different, then that's what really matters the most. And so Footloose was definitely something he was afraid of. And I think the evangelical community saw was a bunch of Hollywood bullshit going on there. But what's sad is I was hoping it was going to be bullshit and it was going to be more fun. And then I was like, oh, God, I'm reading about them like banning children from drag queen shows in texas and i was like oh that's a script right there and you can have a big ending with a bunch of drag queens and kids i'll put feel good movie to put a fine point on my point there everything i just was complaining about in the 80s we're seeing some version of it again right now right yeah i was so struck when john lithgow finally decides that he's he's had enough of of his ban and he's ready to support Kevin Bacon and his daughter and his wife. There are many moments. He, his, his daughter gives him a moment. Diane Weist, his wife, gives him a moment. But the thing that really, like, breaks him is watching the books being burned. That was a wonderful scene. It's really yeah. Also, Lithgow is very good in this because you actually feel for him. He's not like the cartoonish evil minister. You're like, he's struggling. It does take some time to get there, but eventually you do. Yeah. That's true. I thought by the end, I was like, By oh, the end, yeah, yeah, yeah. This guy yeah. Is pretty but for human. The, like, the first half of the movie, I'm like, 
dude. When they're, when they're like, you read Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah, I exactly. About that part. Uh, but I think that it's really interesting that the that the final straw for him is is this moment of book burning, um, which to him feels like a bridge too far. Right. And 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 he he really wants to pull and and his he he says over and over in the movie that he, he feels like he's responsible for the spiritual health of the whole community, and he takes on this extremely like per- paternalistic view of his responsibility to the flock, and. And it's when he sees his flock has like strayed, right? And right. and they have and they have gone to book burning. Yes. That that he that he like, didn't what, sanction. That he didn't sanction. True. He's, a, he's, That's he's against. Part. Yeah, he's against a lot of books. And he's, well, it's that crazy right. married couple that are like yeah. they're like we want to go hardcore. But I think if you life. imagine somebody who is in his forties in nineteen eighty four, you know that's that's a that's a baby boomer. That's someone who has grown up with uh, their own parents, and and like, st- I I think that there's like a, I think that there's like a, a World War II era Nazi era. Like we don't in America we don't burn yeah. books kind mm, of definitely. idea, mm, which is obviously not true. In yeah. America we do burn books. Yes. We've been burning books since the 1600s. Yep. But it um, used to have a Nazi motif. But around it used it to have more, a Nazi yeah. motif around it, and I and I think that for a baby boomer character, it it it, it was like more evil. Than, than he, even he is able to take in that moment. And now now we're back right. to being ahistorical and having forgotten right. that, that we don't like Nazis. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, the the the, the yeah. fact that the fact that this <laughs> this that some true. of these plot points like burning books and um this hardcore fundamentalism, the fact that I was watching this this silly slight movie. I mean, let's, you know, we're we're taking it very seriously because in a certain ways it deserves that. But let's be honest, this is a popcorn summer movie, right? Yeah. Totally. It's a pop culture yeah. relic and it's for teenagers. And yet I'm watching it and I'm like, oh my God, I feel like I'm reading the goddamn newspaper. Like this is literally <laughs> yeah. happening right now. What the <laughs> fuck, man? <laughs> but the good news is your dad seems to have seen your your perspective now. And now your dad's like He had his John Lithgow I support, moment. Yes. He he, I support he looked out at the congregation <laughs> and he said and you know it's worth noting my dad is also a preacher. He looked out at the congregation and he said, uh, you know, well I don't remember what John Lithgow says. What does he say? He says he says, let us join yes. in praying for these these kids and all their endeavors. Right. And that's how he gives approval to their to their plan mm-hmm. to have a dance on the other side, yeah. right across the uh, town tracks or whatever at the edge of town. He sanctions their yeah. labors. Um, but instead of Kevin Bacon, it was the George W. Bush administration that flipped your dad, right? Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. You, you, <laughs> you know, you know, you know, time. we spent a lot of time. Uh, that's like probably a 10 beer deep story you must have gotten right there. That hey, I that. went to Catholic school my whole life. We were all dealing with this shit. So we have to, that's why we're taking Footloose so seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Matt, what about you? I picked... I picked the most ridiculous song on the soundtrack, which maybe you guys don't agree, but Holding Out for a Hero by Bonnie Tyler. It is one of those sentimental overdrive, bombastic 80s torch songs. And it works in what it's supposed to be, a ridiculous 80s anthem where you can set any montage to and you can probably stick it in a lot of bad movies. And the lyrics are just terrible and um 
I don't know how deep you looked into this, but do you know why I did not. Bonnie Tyler needs a hero and why she's holding out for a hero? I have no idea. I have I've looked no deep. No, I did not look beneath the surface at all. No deep. No, no deep. deep. We looked no deep, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> well, she doesn't either because the only thing I can realize, the only line... You know, she's where have all the good men gone is the opening line. And it's all about how she needs a hero. And I'm like, why does she need a hero? What is and all I got is the line. Where's the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? And oh, the only thing she needs yeah. is someone to fight the rising odds. But we have no idea what these odds are or um, who needs to save her from what. But this might be the most damseling song ever written, possibly. I'm sure there's other ones. But it's just full damsel overdrive. I need a hero. I need a man to save me. And I looked into this song, and uh, I think it was Paramount Pictures asked Bonnie Tyler if they they can have a song. And I don't know if you know this. Me and Joshua were talking about this before the podcast. Dean Pitchford, who wrote the movie, Mm. co-wrote all the songs on the soundtrack and was putting it together. And the movie studio would get... Um, different people to come and do the songs with him. And he he got this made. He was a Broadway actor and he was a songwriter and he actually wrote Fame. That was his claim to fame in 1980. And then he wanted to get this movie made and he had worked or kind of knew Kenny Loggins before in the industry. And he said the only way is if he can get Kenny Loggins to write a song for him. Okay. Um, which happened and they wrote it and then people were like, okay, you got Kenny Loggins. <laughs> let's yeah. talk. Let's do this. <laughs> and then the movie started rolling and he kept pairing up and co-writing all these songs. And one was Bonnie Tyler. And she said on one condition that my producer, Jim Steinman can write it with me. And they said, okay, so Jim Steinman helped write the song. And if you look and Jim Steinman, who's a producer and had a career, he had a solo album and he has the exact same song on his solo album that he sings with completely different lyrics (laughs) and different vocals, same piano, same driving rhythm. And he probably loved this song. And he was like, it's three years later. It's going to be in this big movie. Maybe I can juice it up. And I want to play it for you guys and see what your take is. It's really funny. It's got the the piano and the driving. You hear it, and right when you want it to be like, I need a hero, Jim Steinman is like, Stark Raven, love. And it's like really funny, and it's like then becomes a totally different song. But he loved, obviously loved the, uh, the buildup and the background and the crescendo and the synths right. and the piano. And he was like, all right, I'm just going to rewrite this into a different song. me that this hero song i mean it works beautifully in the scene that it's in with the tractor chicken oh yeah we have to talk about that the same way that uh let's hear it for the boy really syncs up nicely with what's happening on screen and with the vibes of what's Mm -hmm. happening and it kind of really narratively links up as well i think this song is doing the same thing in this moment in the movie and it also kind of forces you to uh empathize a little bit with ariel like it's very clear that the the speaker of the bonnie tyler song analog in the movie's narrative is Ariel. Mm-hmm. Right. She's like waiting for this hero to save her from this small town um, and save her from Chuck. 
Uh, and her own trauma, apparently. Yeah. Um, but it's not... It's not a song on the on of the caliber. No, it's it's not a good song. It's just, but it's it's so purely. It's not like, really you a can good song. Bottle an eighties montage anthem. This is it. It just sound. It has. It just yeah. has that sound to it and the driving force and its ridiculousness. Yeah, it's bootleg yeah. heart. I think it's pretty amazing that Dean Pitchford wrote this movie and wrote all these songs. That's pretty. That's that's yeah. pretty unusual. Um, but he was a Broadway guy again. Yeah, yeah that's like very. That's, I was about to say, yeah. that's very Broadway. Yeah. That's like, I'll write the this book. This movie had you know? its roots all in musicals and Broadway. Yeah, very clearly. And I didn't pick up on that at all when I was young. Um, this time yeah. watching it, I, you can kind of see it. But uh, yeah, yeah. Like Kenny Loggins is kind of the, the, the pop star guy you think it's around, but he's, he's kind of the odd man out while it's like a bunch right. of music people and musicals. So, Heather. Yeah. What about this secret mini shadow soundtrack going on in Footloose? Yeah. Stuff that's not on the album. Well, but in the well, it's not on the original release of the soundtrack, but 15 years later, we get uh, a, a, an anniversary re-release, which we've seen happen before in some other episodes right. we've done, like Pretty in Pink's 25-year anniversary with the special Pink Wax vinyl. Um, so this happens. <laughs> it happens for movies that have like super iconic soundtracks. The original soundtrack was actually released before the movie. Did you guys see that when you were learning about this movie? Because uh, your guy, Harold, is that his name, Matt, the director, Harold? Herbert. Herbert. Harold Herbert. Um, Kevin Kenny. (laughs) Felt like uh, people would have a a greater emotional connection to the music in the movie if the music was familiar. Oh, that's smart. Oh, I think I did read that. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. So, so, so the soundtrack comes out before the movie does, um, and then of course gets all this ridiculous radio play, and everybody loves it. And then there are four songs on the in the movie that are not included on the soundtrack. But I don't know if you guys noticed this either. When when you watched the credits, did you see just how like celebratory the credits are about the music in this movie? Yes, yeah. Like Mm -hmm. the only thing you get in the credits before you get this like bombastic typography about the songs is the cast before everybody in the crew you get a list of all of the songs in the movie and then you get even a very clear list of like the four that uh that are sort of separate from the soundtrack but when the re-release comes out they add those they add they add some songs back in. So the mm-hmm. the ones that they add uh, that were um, originally on the Shadow soundtrack but make it on the re-release are that Quiet Riot song, "Bang mm-hmm. Your Head." Um, you also <laughs> get uh, foreigners waiting for, for a yeah. girl like, like you. you, which is uh, playing in the bar that Kevin Bacon takes uh, Chris Penn and Sarah Jessica Parker and Ariel his preacher's girlfriend too. i have a quick question about that when you're done Ask, fire away so when chris penn almost gets in a fight with that dude yeah he's dancing with sarah yeah. jessica parker because chris that, penn refuses that to 40 dance year old he hasn't dude. yet gone through his transition yeah. to to great dancer <laughs> and um the guy ends up punching him out but right before his big ins- insult at the bar is and i wrote it down another dick line like uh, when i wrote down the one from <laughs> waiting to exhale yeah he says to him when's the last time you've seen your dick partner right. 
What yeah. does that mean? He has a very has a beer small, gut. He so has confused. a very small beer gut that they that they showed that they closed it when they when they first introduced the character. They did a close up on his beer gut. Oh, it was a fat joke. Yes, yeah. the dude that guy is, wasn't. I get no. The dude's fat. like probably like twenty five pounds overweight. Like he's like an, he's so not like that. He just looked like a regular be, yeah, older yeah, dude yeah, at totally. a bar. <laughs> Oh, that because yeah, I get yeah. that joke in that context, but I was like, that guy sees his penis all the time. What's going on? <laughs> anyway, sorry. sorry uh, we Heather. also get a we also get a on. remix of that Shalimar song, "Dancing in the Sheets." Um, but if you ask me, the best thing that they put on the re-release soundtrack is John Cougar Mellencamp's "Hurt So Good." Which I have a Here feeling. We Here we go. Yeah, exactly. Here we go. You're t- tell me, tell me what you think about John Cougar Mellencamp, Matt. Mm, on He's the, spot. the 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 lesser Midwestern Bruce Springsteen. I knew Ugh. this was coming. He's- Boom. <laughs> so that is that is literally the most basic. And oh, I should have said and- flyover country Bruce Springsteen to be more insulting. <laughs> that is the, the most flyover like, boss. Basic <laughs> the flyover boss. And his informed Maybe people will finally he was tweet John- us more. Oh Bellencap was born in the real USA. <laughs> I am just waiting. Okay, okay. I'm I think done. he is a record company's answer, though. Go on. Uh, that's not true. <laughs> Um, That's the Jersey myth we'd spread a lot. Your take on John Cougar Mellencamp is literally the most basic misinformed take on John Cougar Mellencamp that could possibly exist. Mm, it are, is that's a big declaration. It, 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 it is a it is a fucking pumpkin spice latte of a take. <laughs> the guy whose middle name he made Cougar. Okay, he go on. did not do that. His yeah, record company did it to yep. him, and he had so my take and he is kind of good. And he had to claw claw his way back to being able to use his his actual name. But like, let's I like just, the Cougar. Let's just John Cougar. Back, it's a, he's a record company product. No, he's not. All right. Let me tell you a little bit about John Cougar Mellencamp that goes beyond <laughs> your fucking pumpkin spice latte. No, it's not a pumpkin spice latte. It's like a shot of espresso you need to drink, Heather. See, I've I've tasted this take and it's just wrong. It's now, a little bitter because not everyone likes espresso, but let me tell you. I'll why. let you okay, make your case. Make your case. I think if you look at the arc of John Cougar Mellencamp's career, you find an authentic American singer-songwriter who understands his own role in the world as like a troubadour and who is like profoundly humble and insightful and whose lyrics may not be at like Leonard Cohen level poetry, but are nonetheless like really delightfully uh, playful about really serious stuff. And he's, he's really an accessible artist about things that are actually really hard uh, medicine to take. And, and I think it people who think that, that he's like a knockoff Bruce Springsteen, that he's like bootleg Bruce, are are not right for a couple of reasons. Like his his first big album is American Fool, comes out in 1982, and it has the hurt so good on it, along with Jack and Diane. Um, 
Jack and Diane, I will grant you, it's not much. It's like Glory Days is a better version of that song's story. Uh, um, but if Glory Days is a uh, Bruce, is a, Bruce is a is, is, is if Glory Days is a bratwurst, uh, maybe Jack and Diane is a chili dog. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. Um, I mean, Jack and Diane is doing a, is doing like a lot more telling than showing, right. whereas Glory Days is doing you know doing the opposite. But Hurt So Good is like a perfect song. It's delightful. It's also really well chosen for this movie, I think, because again, like I think Ariel is a toxic, crazy eye girlfriend that no one in their right mind would want to see their buddy be with. And uh, and the song She's is just all dealing is with all, shit. Is all about like bad love and when it doesn't go right and how you're still drawn to it anyway. Anyway, these are okay songs. They're good. But where we really get like the beginning of, I think, the Mellencamp that is worth caring about is the subsequent year when he comes out with the album Uh Uh-Huh, which has Pink Houses on it. Okay. Oh, no. I think Pink Houses (laughs) is an absolutely fantastic song. Wow. It was he 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 performed it at the Obama inauguration at the Lincoln Memorial for like good reason. He earned that spot. Like the lyrics of Pink Houses are much better than the lyrics of something like Jack and Diane and he's really asking real questions about what we're all dreaming about and why and how and when he tells us like little pink houses for you and me he's He's both acknowledging our desire for that American dream and its comforts while also telling us that, like, it's okay that we haven't achieved it because it's actually totally unattainable. Like, he, he just has, like, a, a, a working class sensibility and, and a commitment to, like, not putting on airs that I, I, I really like. And then he moves on to make uh, albums like Scarecrow, where he starts bringing in all of these like really traditional instruments. He's got dulcimers by this point. He's doing farm. He like launches Farm Aid with Neil Young yeah, and Willie cool. Nelson. Like good company there. He, yeah, I mean, and his good company continues for decades thereafter. Like Johnny Cash loves him. T Bone Burnett loves him. Like people describe him as being uh, people who you would who you Matt would say are like worthy of your love themselves love John Mellencamp and well they are probably on the same record label or something wow <laughs> she's gonna stick to the bit um you really he, prepared for this you know, you came out of you came out of the gate I'm just well, I've actually off. thought about you John, got research John Mellencamp a lot like I I huh, I wow. really I really loved him growing up I really loved these albums I have listened to uh-huh countless so, like, times you sing along when he's ain't that America mm-hmm I mean, I I, like I, I probably it. I probably mm-hmm. sing along to John Cougar Mellencamp songs too. I mean, they're 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 pretty. But in I what mean, way? How are you singing along to them? With a tear in your eye? No, or? no, they're just they're just like I'm I'm at CVS and they and they're you know <laughs> playing and I'm just like yeah, little pink houses for you and me. Yeah, also, I mean, I don't not... know. They they they're just kind of sing along songs. I mean, I can I can I get yeah. That. I mean, they're radio hits. So yeah. yes, they are sing along songs. They're also not a ripoff of Bruce Springsteen, which I think is something that a lot of people believe. Um, if you look at the years that Nebraska came out, the years that The River came out, the years that Born in the USA came out versus the years that Uh-huh came out and the, when American Fool came out, when Scarecrow came out, like they were in the same milieu. Nobody was like copying anybody. He's not the bootleg Bruce Springsteen. He's, I don't think he's, he's the, the bootleg Bruce Springsteen because he's, he's mid- trying to copy him, though. I just think because he's trying to do 
that thing that a lot of people are trying to do at the time. I don't think they're copying. It's just the thing that's going on. And you just I, think and he's I, not as good at it. And I just think he's like, you know, and it's fine. Like Bruce Springsteen's first album, he's just copying Bob Dylan. So like, that's fine. You can just copy people, be your own thing. I just think his songs always just sound a little more radio friendly and a little cuter and a little. Yeah, I think uh, they are. I think they are. And I think he would say that too. And, and I think he would be fine with that. Um, and I, I, maybe I like he's that not. about maybe I, he wishes things I were like different. I like that about him. I like that he's stuck to his Indiana roots. I think he's a he's like uh he really cares about the community he came from uh despite having, you know, a, a supermodel wife at one point. He got yeah. he got his girlfriend pregnant when he was in high school. They got married and he was a dad by the time he was like 18 years old and and like stuck through that. Like it's all None of Wait, it is when did he get the when did he get the supermodel wife? She was in one of his later videos. Elaine Irwin Mellencamp. That was like uh, in so the he 90s. left her for the supermodel. Bruce he was also no, no, no. He had well, he has he's had he's actually been married three <laughs> I times. I cannot fucking life. believe I know that John you know, Mellencamp is. You know a lot three about John, John. I do. Bakug. I do know a lot about. What was John the Mellencamp, video where he's boxing? I fought authority. I like that song. Oh, that's a that's that's authority song. It's it's on. Uh, I fought authority. Authority always wins. it. I wish I was Bruce Springsteen. It's something like that. I don't know. The next verse. <laughs> that is that is another song on Uh Huh, the same album that has Pink Houses. Uh, when he when he gets to ditch the the cougar name because he's like convinced his record company to treat him with a little more respect. Um, and that song is a is like almost a callback. He he talks about that song being like very much a direct response to I fought. Yeah, the I get that. Yeah. I, I honestly I really don't have anything against John Cougar Mellencamp. It's mostly his defensive fans. Uh count me among those defensive fans. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm some, I, I I mean I, I don't, it doesn't really matter to me I, other than, but I am a little surprised that, that you are. Is this in the category of Joshua quote emphatically does not no. care? <laughs> no, no, no. It's not that at all. It's, it's, I, I do, I do care in the sense that it's, it's interesting to find out that your friend likes something that you didn't expect <laughs> them to like as much as they like it. And so that's always sort of like, oh, well, okay. Wow. Like you really have thoughts on John Cougar Mellencamp. Like quite a few of them. I really, I All really right? do. I, I really like him. I really like him a whole lot. I, I, I do worry about your stand club a little bit. I think that like <laughs> you think they're there, gonna. Th there might be, be some uh, people who have who who take a little bit of an issue with it. We'll see. We'll see how. If it goes. there are people in my fan club who drink pumpkin spice lattes, bring it on. <laughs> Just listen to Pink Houses. I know it's not the song on the soundtrack that we're talking about, right. but it is my favorite John Mellencamp it's, song. And for the opening is always reason. so weird because when he talks about black people in the opening, it always makes me uncomfortable. And it's like, he's and a black remember, man in a black neighborhood, but he's doing all right. Even though there's a highway in his yard. And it's like, what are you talking about? John Cougar? Why is this guy doing all right? Who I, has a right I, to say that John Cougar Mellencamp? Oh my God. <laughs> I think John Mellencamp does have a right to say that. And uh -oh, I think here, one of the, and I think one of the ways we know that is that he was invited to perform this song at the Lincoln Memorial by Barack. Uh, that's Obama. pretty, that's, that's pretty good cover. That's for sure. Oh, come on. Barack. Uh, what's the list, though? Everyone's on the Barack Obama list. <laughs> I, I love Barack I Obama, but you know who Barack Obama really loves and has a podcast with? Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> <laughs> so you walked true. right into That's that true. one, Heather. That's true. Uh... <laughs> Sometimes Um, hurts, hurts so good is a good scene in the movie, though. 
Heart So Good is a great scene in the movie. Yeah. It's it's like the moment where you, where you actually see real people dancing in a way that doesn't feel quite like a musical and is just full of joy. Yeah, that is a nice scene. All right, now it's time for the big question. Movie, soundtrack, is this the perfect movie soundtrack? No. No, it's really not. God damn, I was all about yes for this. Seriously? Yeah, the movie's called Footloose, and there was a song Footloose, so how are they not perfect for each other? (laughs) I think the small town 80s cheesiness of Christian evangelicals juxtapose against the like poppy rebellious 80s corny songs are just such a perfect little match for each other and the shit teens would really dance to and the stuff that would really worry 80s evangelicals that i just was all in on it and i think this soundtrack is just a pop culture relic and i cannot get i just always see kevin bacon with the maroon blazer with the black lapels dancing the footloose. And it seems so perfect to me. Maybe it's because it's branded. So I'm saying this is the perfect movie soundtrack. The movie needs the soundtrack as much as the soundtrack needs the movie. Wow. Okay. That all right. That's surprising. Is this oh. the first time you've said This might that? be my first one. Are you you really haven't I thought you'd wow. said pulp fiction. Oh yeah, you said you said yeah, yeah, about the yeah. all the surf songs. I think this is my first perfect movie soundtrack, guys. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in the club. I'm in the club. <laughs> okay, dude. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome aboard. I mean, I didn't expect that, but uh, you know, hey, uh, life is full of uh, God works in mysterious ways, right? Uh, well, you're wrong because this is definitely not a perfect movie soundtrack. <laughs> it has John Mellencamp on it, though. No, it does. No. Um, <laughs> the re-release well, does. The re-release. Uh, I think that this movie deserved our taking it seriously, but but I yes, think for sure probably at the end of the day, it's kind of a dumb fucking. So movie. you think? Wait, do you think the soundtrack is not dumb? I think the soundtrack is also dumb. See, but not perfect movie soundtrack. I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> but I but I think the soundtrack is significantly less dumb okay. than the movie. And and I think the soundtrack has has just had like someone was in charge who was in charge made some really great choices of music that really does make you like uh-huh. respond in exactly the way it was designed to. It almost feels lab created to to get you to have the reaction that that they're looking for. And 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 in a way that like I don't. I wouldn't choose to listen to this soundtrack, but if I'm at CVS and it comes on, I'm I'm gonna bop. It's a, you know it's still a bop, but the movie. I again, we've spent some time talking tonight, like finding some things to take seriously about it. I still think it's like a pretty ridiculous movie. The, so this is why I think they're perfect for yeah. each other. But Joshua, what do you think? I I, I just want a second that that 
the movie really doesn't work in a lot of ways. There are things about the movie that does work, and I think we definitely highlighted those. And it might, I think that somebody listening to this podcast tonight might take away from that the movie's actually a little better than it is, because I think we really, we really hit hard on the stuff that works in the movie. There's a lot that doesn't work in the movie. A lot. We were being a little a little too generous, I would say. <laughs> but I think I'm actually going to answer the same answer, but in a very different way. I'm going to pick the movie over the soundtrack because I want the songs Whoa. in the movie. I'm not probably going to listen to the soundtrack again on its own. Mm. I like mm. this. I like the songs contextualized a lot. So the movie's carrying um, the songs. I'm going to go, the movie mm-hmm. is better, but it's not that the movie is actually better. It's just that the movie holds the songs in a way that I think is a is a nice way to take the songs in. All right. Well, two wrongs don't make a right, but... <laughs> okay. I'll hit the So now it's time for my, probably, maybe my favorite part of the podcast. What is the next pick going to be? All right. I will tell you why I'm picking what I'm picking. One reason is that the movies that I have picked have not been as popular as the movies that you have picked. Uh, Both of you (laughs) continue to have movies that get uh, more listens, more responses. Uh, Even my own friends text me more about the movies that you all pick than the ones I pick. I'm jealous. So... This is very I am going to means. correct that with this pick. I am also going to correct another problem that we have here, which is the Heather picking quote unquote chick flicks. Now, we agreed that Charlie's Angels is not a quote unquote chick flick, but we disagreed with Heather on the fact that it <laughs> shattered her tra- her, her um, tradition of doing that. So and, and similarly, <laughs> you know, Matt and I have tended to pick movies that would definitely be put over in the gender binary boy camp. Right. So I'm breaking that. By picking Dirty Dancing. Yes! Yes! I'm excited about this. I will not say that I'm picking it because of the political relevance, but we're not going to be able to avoid the political relevance. It's there. This is exciting. Ah, Joshua. Dude, abortion relevance. I've liked you for a really long time. Timely. But tonight, (laughs) I like you more than I have ever liked you before. Wow, okay. Well, I guess I should have picked this a long time ago. Sounds like someone's got. Hungry eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never felt this way before. Yes, I swear it's the truth. And I owe it all to you. I had the time of my life. I'm excited to watch it. We're going to have the time of our life. <laughs> the heat is in the music. The music sets you dancing. The dancing sets her free. Best Wrong Pictures presents Dirty Dancing. She thought it would be just another summer vacation. Who's that? Oh, them. They're the dance people. But it turns out to be the time of her life. What's me now? Thanks for listening. Be sure to check us out on the socials at TPMS Podcast. You can check out a Spotify playlist with all the songs from the soundtrack, as well as those featured in the episode, linked in the show description. And as always, be sure to tell your friends about us. Or tell us who they are and 
we'll pester them for you. For Heather and Matt, this is Joshua, and we'll see you again in two weeks for another episode of The Perfect Movie Soundtrack.